What do Orthodox Christians actually believe? And by Orthodox, I mean Eastern Orthodox. And how do those beliefs and practices differ from what emerged out of the Protestant Reformation? Joining me on this episode of The Anthony Bradley Show is Stephen Christopherell, Director of Youth and Young Adult Ministries for the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese of America. We look forward to having you join us for this theologically rich conversation about the life and work of an ancient tradition and the difference it makes in the lives of everyday Christians today. Welcome to the Anthony Bradley Show. I am honored today to have my friend, Stephen, on to talk about Eastern Orthodoxy. I was really fascinated thinking about the fact that, if I am honest, uh, we're actually really good friends, just want to put that out there, and, but we've never had these conversations before in the years uh, that we've been friends. Uh, we haven't talked about these things, so I'm excited today to have uh, this, this conversation. I want to read, I want to read uh, his bio on the Greek Orthodox Archives of America website, which I just want to say, uh, for the record, is highly understated. And this brother is, is uh, way more uh, provocative, and uh, he's, he's much more of a beastly giant uh, theologically than one might read on this bio. It says this, uh, he's a graduate of Yale University, uh, Fordham University School of Law, and Holy Cross Greek Orthodox School of Theology. Steve is passionate about sharing the gospel in a clear and accessible way and helping people see Christ at work in their lives. The area of his focus there for the diocese is developing ministry vision, uh, team leadership, uh, public communication, and development. And we'll talk about uh, some of those things uh, today. Stephen, welcome. So glad to have you. It's awesome to be with you. This is great. I'm so and, glad your podcast is off the ground. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, after, after all that time of you prodding me to do this, I finally pulled the trigger. And Huzzah! I, yeah, and it, it also meant that you're on it, though, right? You yeah. take the good, you take the bad. I'm sorry for weighing you down. No, no worries. Uh, for the record, could you pronounce your last name for us? I, I, I actually love this. That's why I didn't, I didn't say it on purpose. But could you pronounce your last name for us? Uh, if, we're, if, we're, if we want to go Greek, go Christoforu, but Christoforu, Christoforu is fine. Christoforu is perfect. Okay. And, and, and in Greek, what does that, what does that last name mean? Um, it's the genitive of Christopher and Christopher is Christ bearer. So it's of the, of the Christ bearer or it just means Christ bearer. Yeah. So that's, so that's it's, quite... it's kind of a fun, a fun, a fun uh, surname for somebody in ministry, I suppose. <laughs> yes. Uh, the one who bears Christ is going to come talk to us today. God. Yeah, I know. It's like, that's some pressure there, bro. Ugh. Yeah, lots of lots of pressure there. Hey, can I'll you can best. you tell us can you tell us a little bit about uh, the work that you do? Yeah, so yeah. I I direct the Office of Youth and Young Adult Ministry or the Department of Youth and Young Adult Ministry for the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese. Uh, I've been working um, in the department now for seven years. Seven years, yeah. Been directing it for about the last six, five and a half or so, uh, and really like 
my, my, the work that we do is kind of a response to just the experience of growing up in the church, realizing so many people disconnect, end up falling away. Um, like what's at the root of that? How can we articulate the gospel in a more kind of clear and effective way for them? How can we inspire them to live out the gospel? Uh, not simply kind of as abstract head knowledge, but to help to form them into faithful disciples of Christ. So a lot of what we do is like media work, videos, podcasts, which, you know, like tends to shape the culture in a way that just abstract curricula doesn't. Uh, a lot of ministry training courses, events, retreats, which really focuses on like concrete and embodied Christian practices. So that, that's really it at the end of the day, just uh, trying to articulate a vision of, of ministry that's a little bit less abstract than the stuff that I grew up with, kind of bring ministry from up here for those who are on the video, down to here, the heart, and just figure out the way that we can facilitate that for homes and parishes, you know, across the archdiocese and around the world. Now, when you were little, this wasn't your sort of dream vocation. You weren't, you weren't planning on this. In fact, uh, you went to law school. I did. Uh, and, and practiced for a while. Is that correct? I did. I practiced for two years uh, before I ended up going to seminary. But my my like lifelong ambition, I wanted to grow up and be president of the United States one day. I wanted to go into politics. Oh. You had big, <laughs> yeah. big goals. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You're not messing around. It's like I want I want to go straight to the top. None of this none of this <laughs> mid level stuff. Uh, for I'm me. a three on the enneagram, so like I define myself by my achievements. So if you ain't first, you're last. That's kind of my. I understand. My inner dialogue. I understand. Yeah. I'm a I'm a two wing three, so I get part of that. Nice. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> so how how did that transition happen from practicing law to seminary? Um, that's that's a great question. That is something that really goes back to when I was a kid. I mean, I remember when I was a kid. Um, it was really the 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 grandmothers, both grandmothers in my life, that were really kind of the faithful Christians in the family, and they had a big infact, impact on my life. And I remember as a kid, kind of asking these questions like, "What do priests do? And what do monks do? And what does it mean to kind of serve God?" And then, you know, I got when in my teenage years, I said, "I'll be president and save the world that way." But at some point, you realize that like you can't save the world if you can't even save your own dang heart. So um, it was it was kind of that like philosophically realizing that I can't fix anything on the outside if my inside is still disordered. And just the, an experience I had when I was in college, um, after kind of a period of falling away from the church of being not necessarily a confessing atheist or agnostic, but somebody who became indifferent about the church. My, my dad passed away my junior year of college. And that was the first time that I prayed in years, um, because I had this, like this moment of sort of existential anxiety. Like there, if there is no God, there is no my dad because he's just worm food at this point. He's gone. And so I kind of for weeks was crying out to this God that I wasn't sure was there. And in the midst of it, I had this sense, this experience, whatever you want to call it, as if like a disembodied arm kind of comes to comfort me and a voice just says like, I have him, he's okay. And that changes everything because suddenly God is not just this, this figment of your imagination, but he's, he's somebody who see, hears you and sees you and in the midst of the magnitude of like the created world, like hears you and responds to you. And like, that's still, I'm still trying to figure out what the heck that means. <laughs> so yeah, that, that was really, that opened up again, a lot of these old longings and sense of calling and tried to say no to it for a long time. But I feel like God can be kind of like a child, um, sort of like tugging on the, on the skirts of his mother, just like, Hey, 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 Hey. And eventually it's kind of, I, it's kind of tapping on the shoulder. Like, like, Hey. Yeah. Don't ignore me. Stop ignoring me. Hey, hey, listen. Yeah, right. 
maybe you should go do this. Maybe you should. Right. Yeah. Well, that was it. yeah. And, and after seminary, uh, you, did you start working for the, the archdiocese right after that? Yeah, right off the bat, um, that was my, my thought. I, I thought about getting a job in a parish somewhere, but then this position in the youth and young adult department opened up and, you know, not my specialty. I, I worked on camp and stuff when I was in seminary, um, but just kind of providentially this opened up and, you know, we kind of like had this long summer um, in 2013 thinking about like what ministry is, how do we do a better job of, and that's where kind of like our current approach came from sort of rebranded things as Y2AM uh, started this video series, be the bee. And that's where we met actually, as a result of that. So I think we started all that in like the summer of 2013. And then I think it was like the spring of 14 or something where we ended up getting connected and we've been friends ever since. Wow. It's been, it's been six years, Stephen. Is uh-huh. that right? Wow. Uh-huh. Quickly. Well, it's just this in the, in the spirit of full disclosure, uh, Stephen is one of my closest friends uh, here in the city. So uh, we were having a super friendly conversation and um, I'm, again, I'm, I, I'm just really excited to re- actually able to do this. By the way, again, this is your fault, right? You, you prodded, you prodded about, <laughs> about, about the podcast. So I'm happy, happy to have you on. Uh, to ha- have this discussion and and you know we met because I had you come into my class because I, I teach a class on comparative theology and one of the units that I cover is is orthodoxy and I have them read uh, an Oxford University uh, companion which is an introduction to that and so students are always asking questions about these traditions that I'm not a part of. And so just as a, a practice, I would always bring in someone uh, from the tradition to actually talk about uh, the, the details that I, I, had, I had no idea about and, and to answer some of those questions. And it was really in the midst of, it was really in the, in the midst of those, of those conversations that I realized that so much of what I had read about the Orthodox tradition from a Protestant perspective, had been a lie, right? I mean, just <laughs> outright wrong. And and what I learned is that if you want to learn about another tradition, don't read another interpretation of it, or actually read the tradition yourself. Yeah, especially so, a polemical sort of, you know, interpretation, right? Which Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, which with all sorts of embedded, you know, biases against it, right? Because if you're if you're a Protestant, I'm going to teach somewhere on orthodoxy. I'm going to teach in such a way that, at the conclusion of it, people are going to think that orthodoxy is wrong, right? I mean, that's mm. that that you know that would be the only perspective from which I would teach it as a as a Protestant, right? Because I, I don't want people to leave and like convert or something like that, right? So I say, <laughs> hey, 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 this is good, but you know, here's what here, here's where it airs. And so I thought, I thought, you know, I, I have a lot of people who uh, are interested in, in, in orthodoxy, uh, lots of, of people that, that I have been exposed to, been reading sort of, you know, for, for quite some time. The Church Fathers was a really hot uh, topic in the evangelical world. And yeah. a lot of people don't know actually what orthodox Christians believe. And so I wanted to just run through... Uh, some doctrinal things to sort of get from your perspective a good understanding of of some of those things so that people can sort of hear it uh, straight up rather than reading someone's interpretation of it. Totally. 
And and what what would what would you say at at the outset are some of the you know two or three big distinctives of, of orthodoxy? What sort of sets it apart? Would you say from from Western Christianity? Yeah, um, and obviously, like it's hard. Like this is a great question, right? And I've been thinking about this for a while. How do you express something so big in such a pithy way? I think I think the the thing that I would start with is the church is just a lot bigger than us. I think that's one thing that really comes in mind, right? There's no like set catechism that embodies the whole thing. Like the whole thing can't really be defined in kind of a systematic sort of theology where you put a nice bow on it, right? There's this, there's, there's, there's this, this, this tension that we live in, in terms of the church, like between kind of the apophatic and the cataphatic, right? There's apophatic things that we can say, like, like we can say things about God, right? Kind of positive statements and also things that we say that are kind of negative statements. And the truth is kind of this weird tension between the two of them. It's not really a thing that you can kind of define precisely because it's bigger. Like God is just, but he's also not just. He's, he's bigger than any concept of justice that we can have. And like the church as the body of Christ is just bigger than any kind of like dogmatic book or system, systematic book or whatever it is. It's, it's bigger than our sense of denominations. It's bigger than our sense of, you know, my, my, Maybe my favorite way of making this concrete, every liturgy, you know, which is kind of the Sunday worship, the Eucharistic worship of the church, uh, when, when, the, when the consecration is happening, when the bread and wine are being lifted up and consecrated into the body and blood, the, the priest is there and he'll kind of like, you know, read these prayers and he says kind of remembering the incarnation, the cross, et cetera, et cetera, and the second coming, the second glorious coming. Like we, we, in that moment, we stand sort of outside of time and are looking backwards in a sense on the second appearing of the Lord. That's what the church is. It's just, it's bigger than kind of like this sense that we might sometimes have about it. Um, and as a result, because it's so big, it takes heavenly worship seriously. Um, you know, the stuff that we read in the old Testament about the, the visible, hopefully being an image of the invisible, you know, the, the temple being laid out to reflect that heaven reality. So like worship matters, um, a relationship with the saints and the angelic bodiless powers like matters, right? The church is not confined to the visible, uh, but also earthly realities matter. Like our bodies matter, our emotions matter, like the health of the human person matters. And it all kind of comes together in a real sense of like the way the, the embodied practices of what it is to be a Christian, which it's kind of comforting, actually, like you were saying, evangelicals have been getting back into the fathers lately. Um, there's even little sort of like Bible churches that are sort of, you know, trying to get in touch with confession and fasting and these old sort of Christian practices. I mean, that's really a, a result of our concern for the physical, the visible, our concern for the invisible. And all of it is just because the church is so much bigger. And um, I don't know, that's a lot, but I feel like that's just the best way that I can say, this is what seems so distinctive about the church to me. Yeah. And I think, I think one, one distinctive in, in the West, right. You, you made that distinction between apophatic and cataphatic, right. Is, is that I think, I think in the West, there is a sense that that we know we do know a lot about God, and we can create dogmatic texts and categories and and list those things. I think I think I think it's fair to say that in the East, there's much more of a, an appreciation for the fact that there's a lot we don't know, right? Yeah, um, there's a lot of mystery. And so our attempts to at least describe, in, in some respects, the indescribable, is at best a, uh, I, I don't even want to say an approximation because it doesn't even come that close, right? It's, it's sort of 
at best a feeble attempt at sort of like baby talk about <laughs> about about God. That's the best we can do, right? Is sort of yeah. sort of baby talk, right? Which has its place. Absolutely. Which totally has its place, right? Yeah. But even that confidence, like that the making the baby talk out to be more than it can be, just changes our the the direction of our theology a lot of times. Like one practical application of this is sometimes, you know, you'll have there, an emphasis on like the nature of God or the character of God sometimes, right? As if, as if God couldn't do otherwise because he has kind of an inherently good nature, right? Like, which, which is weird because that puts kind of constraints upon the freedom of God and puts him in this box that we're defining. Whereas a lot of like Orthodox theologians, you'll have like the emphasis be more upon the person of God. Like it, it, it is the, it is the free choice of God that makes God good, right? He's not just kind of this, this bubbling brook that can't do otherwise, but bubble grace. Like it's a, it's a choice. Like there's actually a person behind this, a free choice, which is the, the, the prime mover for all of this. Like God makes the world because he wants to, not because he sort of is compelled by his nature. Right. And, and even the little subtle things like this, whether God can or can't just really has these ripple effects when we start thinking about who he is and our relationship to him and, and yada, yada, yada. Yeah, and I, you know, you know, so so much of that of that discussion is at least primarily in the Western tradition, and especially in the Protestant tradition, especially in the Reformed Protestant tradition. Uh, 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 so much of that is is dependent on on uh, what Scripture says explicitly about God, and then we make these sure. deductions based based on that. You know, Scripture says X, therefore God. You know Y. And I'm, I'm wondering, what's the role of, of the Bible? Because the, the average evangelical person is going to say, hey, the Bible is the final authority. Whatever we know about God, we can get from the Bible. The Bible is, is the first and last referee on everything. And in the Eastern tradition, my, 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 my sense is that there's a, there's a different orientation with the scriptures uh, from particularly the evangelical uh, church, how does how does orthodoxy sort of treat the the canon in, with respect to everything else? Yeah, that's a great question, um, and and maybe it helps to like to think about some of our underlying biases as twenty first century Americans in particular, right? Because now, if I want the scripture, I just press a button on Amazon, and I can have like any translation, any version. I can go online, right? Like the scripture is this this thing that exists before me. And I think we have this underlying assumption that the scripture is just this thing that fell out of the heavens complete and almost like pre-exists the church. Um, but that's not quite right. I mean, um, you know, if you look at the history of the, the the canonization of scripture and like the writing of the books, I mean, you don't get the first the first book of the New Testament. I mean, there was always the Old Testament, right? Although we can get into that sort of like canonization process. But like that happens, what, in the 50s? So there's about 20 years, the first two decades of the, of the church history, which is like shaped by the oral tradition of the, of the disciples, right? You don't get the last book of the canon until the 90s, right, at the earliest, when in terms of like the St. John. Um, but then you have like all of these decades when, or all of these centuries when like the, the canon of the, the New Testament w- wasn't even like defined, right, until the fourth century at the earliest in a letter by St. Athanasius. Like it, it, it took a long time for this, this clean package that we have to sort of drop out of the sky. Like it emerged out of the church. You know, it was written by the members of the church. It was kind of approved and canonized by the members of the church. It kind of walks alongside the community and emerges emerges out of the community rather than just sort of fully formed out of heaven. Um, you know, we don't have the same. It's interesting. Like 
I think it, sometimes in kind of the post-Reformation world, like people will view the Christian scripture more along the ways like that Muslims will look at something like the Quran as if this is like the actual word of God that kind of is delivered from heaven as opposed to the inspired word of God that is like mediated through the saints who wrote it. Um, but what does that mean? Like that means it emerges out of community. It has to be understood in community. There's this, there's this really beautiful uh, metaphor that St. Irenaeus, an early church father, like he'll say that the scripture is like a mosaic right? And, and a mosaic has all these little pieces, the jewels, the gold, whatever it is. You can take the mosaic of a king and you can very easily disassemble it and reassemble it into the image of a dog. Same underlying pieces, right? But the, the, the sort of the form of the image is lost, right? And that's what sometimes happens when we sort of take scripture out of context, when we sort of interpret it by ourselves. And, and we see like in scripture itself, the disciples of Christ had enough sense to realize they couldn't understand it by themselves. I mean, very famously, right on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, like the disciples who knew the Old Testament scripture, who knew the scriptures, didn't get who Jesus was. And like Jesus has to come to them and open the scriptures to them and be like, that's how you read this thing, you know? And then you go zoom fast forward to Acts, right? Acts 8 in the Ethiopian eunuch. And here's a guy who's reading Isaiah, like, please teach me how to read because I have the book, but I don't know how the heck to make, make sense of this thing. And for some reason, we have this sense, you know, the, it's a little bit, you know, it's a stereotype, like me and my Bible, I'll figure it out by myself. But there's no evidence of that ever happening, like in the history of the church, especially in the New Testament. Like Jesus gives us the interpretive key to the scripture, which is him, you know, which, which is him. Um, and this is passed down from generation to generation of Christians. Um, and like it's mediated in community. Like you think even the letters of St. Paul, Paul is constantly writing to people to correct errors that they made because it wasn't just like people were let loose to do their stuff. Like there had to be somebody who was receiving this interpretive key, kind of correcting and passing this interpretive key on. So the scripture is important, but by itself, the scripture can, you can use it to, to believe and to sort of like establish anything. Um, it's, it's, it's about the interpretation of scripture and making sure that you're actually using Christ to unlock it rather than reading your own kind of preconceived biases or notions or whatever it is into scripture. So it's important, but how do we get to the important meat of the scripture that I think is the real like crux of the, of the conversation? Yeah. And there's, there's been a, a long history of, of Christians misusing the scripture, right. And, and individuals making decisions about what texts mean, and it's led to all sorts of oppression and violence uh, because totally. of that, because of that abuse. And I think, I think one of the weaknesses that we see in a lot of Western, particularly Protestant, particularly evangelical uh, Christianity, is this sense that I j- it's just a Bible in me, right? I don't yeah. really need to read it in community. I read the text, and what matters is what's in it for me, right? You sort of that's how some people are taught to read it read it and, and tell us like, what, you know, what do you get out of a text? Right. Mm. Uh, as opposed to reading, to understand what the text says, what it actually means, which is difficult to do outside community. I think, I think there, there may be some arrogance and, you know, uh, inadvertent sort of arrogance that I can, I can understand this just by myself. Totally. And, um, right. And that, le- and that leads, right, to even make this more, more concrete. There was a, a, an article that first came out maybe a couple of years ago. Um, 
I might have seen you share this actually originally. It's like a survey that was done of um, modern American evangelical Christians, and something like 80% of them believe that Jesus is not divine, but it's just kind of the greatest creation that God the Father made, and the Holy Spirit is not like a person, but just a force. I mean, these are like basic Christological and, and, and sort of, you know, heresies against the Trinity that were dealt with a long, long time ago. Nice uh, Because yes. we're kind of... Right? Like we're blind to the history and we're blind to the way of like interpreting scripture. So we're like, we're making these rookie mistakes because we're doing it like that. Yeah. And I think, I think for at least a lot of, of Western Christians, their understanding, the conversation has so much to do with sort of uh, uh, the attacks that, that came from sort of Western philosophy, right? About the... Yeah the reliability of, of the scriptures, the authority of it, whether or not it has mistakes. And so much of that discourse has, I think, shaped sort of normal practice. And, and I, I think one of the benefits of orthodoxy is it wasn't a part of all of some of those conversations. So it's been, it's been freed up from having to apologetically make that, make that case. So a lot of evangelicals are going to say things like this, right? That that the Bible is the right inerrant, uh, inspired Word of God, and they'll want to know: Does orthodoxy believe that? Yeah, I mean, and, and the, the easy sort of like the, the short answer is sure. Yes, it is the inspired Word of God, right? but how do we sort of get at the word of God, right? As opposed to my own word, right? Again, like a lot of it is about the question of the interpretation. Right. And, and, and also I think when we, if we really want to push this, 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 this question, right? What does it mean for the scripture to even be inspired, right? Because I think we have this kind of like the sense that, you know, it's, it, it was, it was the original writers and, 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 and whatever, like they have this particular place, but we'll use a silly example, Hebrews, right? Hebrews, the church has known basically from the beginning that Paul didn't write Hebrews most likely. Um, but that doesn't affect the canonicity of the book of Hebrews, right? right? Because the church sort of realizes this and is like, this doesn't matter. This is scripture. This is what we're sort of like going to collect and we're going to liturgically read and so forth. Or first and second Corinthians, right? Paul probably wrote four letters. Like is, is the inspired scripture, the original letter that Paul wrote, which we don't have, or is it the thing that the church has collected and gathered and preserved? Like, I don't even think you can have a conversation about what inspired means without the church being a part of that inspiration. Um, Cause otherwise, like you're going to have to chuck out a lot of these things. Like all of this has been, has been mediated. If I can use that word right through the people who wrote and preserved these things. So like, yeah, we'll talk about the scriptures being like the, the inspired inerrant word. But again, there's like, it's a, it's a messy process. God and his grace are certainly a part of that process, but like, so are people. <laughs> Sometimes they're not even the people that we think, right? With Paul and Hebrews or whoever wrote like, you know, Corinthians, is it all four letters of Paul that were somehow mi mixed and matched together? Who was the editor that, you know, chopped them up into one and two? Like it's, it's messy. It's messy, but it's, it's the life of the church. Right. And I think, I think one of the important distinctions that a lot of people may not realize, even, even in, uh, many Protestant traditions is is that the language about inspiration is not about your English version, right? That the language of inspiration <laughs> sure. is actually about the original autographs that we don't have, right? Mm -hmm. And and whether or not one believes that that that, that process 
uh, was inspired by the spirit, not your the version that you buy on Amazon for twenty nine, you know, ninety eight. That's actually not the uh, inspired text. And there are people who treat their English versions as if that, that's the version uh, that's inspired, and will rebuke people for not having certain certain versions of the, of that of that totally. text, right? But but he but here's and here's another wrinkle to this too, right? If we're thinking about the Old Testament, um, it, it's a it's a really interesting phenomenon that, of course, like most of the books of the Old Testament were written in Hebrew initially, but at the very like with maybe the exception of Sirach and like at least one or two of the later books, but there was there was an effort because of the dia- the Jewish diaspora, right? Like the, the the Old Testament text was translated into Greek, which creates this thing that we call the Septuagint, right? And the Septuagint which differs in some ways from the Masoretic is kind of like the old Testament of the, of the early church from the very beginning. And it's interesting that one of the consequences of the reformation is when we're sort of like going back, there's this, there's this, this, this attempt to go back to the Hebrew version of the old Testament scripture, which kind of jumps over the Septuagint, which had been like the old Testament of the, of the church for, you know, a millennia and, and was the old Testament of most of Judaism in the diaspora. Right. But like the Masoretic text doesn't exist really until like the ninth or 10th century when it's kind of like edited and the vowels are put in and some of the choices are actually made like in, in opposition to Christianity, right? Because there's kind of like the tension of the relationship between early Christians and the, and the, and the synagogue and so forth, right? But like, so what even becomes the Old Testament in that sense? Is it, is it the, te- the, the 10th century revisited Masoretic text? text? Is it the... Greek text that was translated from the Hebrew in like the third or fourth century and was read as authoritative in the synagogue. Like most people today, when they look at their Old Testament text, they go back to the Hebrew. And again, that's one way of like bypassing the life of the church in a weird sort of way. But all they're really doing is going back to the 10th century, not to like, you know, the 10th century BC. <laughs> so again, it just get, it just gets, it gets messy. Yeah. I had a, a professor uh, when I was a student at Covenant Seminary who would, he would basically uh, do parallel readings of the Septuagint with the Masoretic text, just to sort of make sure that his translations were the tightest possible. He wouldn't just rely on the Masoretic text. In fact, uh, he would frequently quote from the Septuagint in class mm. um, as, as, a, as a part of the way that he taught. He would, he would, he would regularly uh, uh, source that text. I, I think most people... Well, I'll say this. I think I think most American Christians are just ignorant of church history and aren't even aware of what you just said, right? That there was sure. this earlier Greek translation that sort of predates the Masoretic text. And that, you know, perhaps the the Septuagint might be closer to the original than than the Masoretic text. But that's, that's something biblical studies scholars will get to argue about at really nerdy conferences. I don't, I don't know. Totally. Yes. And, and, and it's not, and it's not to say there's no value obviously in like learning the Hebrew and going back to the Masoretic text or anything like that. But it's, it's a question again of like the role that community plays in a lot of this. And sometimes we make these choices to go back to the original unadulterated, but like, you can't you can't strip the community of the church out of there and still have a church, right? right? Then it just becomes a text that fell out of the heavens. But when you strip out the community, it's not actually a text that fell out of the heavens when you want it to have fallen out of. It's not a first century right. text right. or a fifth century BC text. It actually becomes something that's much later because you kind of like you you, you throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like you can't right. 
you can't do this without the church. Right. And so you keep talking about, you know, community and, and the church and, and the people. I'm, I'm wondering, I'm wondering how this all fits within the context of the practice of, of the liturgy. I, I have distinct memories of, of reading about orthodoxy and learning, you know, just sort of being encouraged by the centrality and the importance of liturgy within the life of the community. In terms of in terms of, of liturgy being the mediator of so many parts of, of spiritual life, and I'm wondering how how would you explain to someone who's new to orthodoxy about why the liturgy is just so important in the history? And and I'm I'm bringing this up, folks, because if you if you go with me to the uh, cathedral on 74th in New York City. The liturgy is not something they made up last week. Uh, in fact, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that the liturgy that you're going to hear uh, dates back to uh, uh, Christosom, which goes back to when, Stephen? I mean, he was like fourth century, but yeah. again, like there were there were there are changes and things that yeah, happened yeah, since yeah. then, right? But fundamentally, sure, it's a it's a fourth fifth. It's old. You know, it's an old old liturgy, and and. There are reasons that the liturgy has has sustained the structure that it does, and I, I'm curious to know how you would explain to someone like why is that liturgy that's been around since the fourth century or so? Why is that so central to to the life of orthodoxy? Yeah, so maybe there's there's three levels to take this. Right, the first level is that in the in the Old Testament. Anytime we have like a vision of, of, of the kingdom of God on his throne, it's always worship, right? It's always sort of like him being surrounded by the angels and the heavenly hosts singing Hosanna, right? Like the incense and so forth. So what little we know about the kingdom is that it is like it's worship. The activity of, of the heavenly host is surrounding the Lord. I mean, meeting with him in council, of course, right? But like worshiping him. And so the liturgy, like in the same way that the temple, right, and the tabernacle and all that was laid out in the Old Testament to be a visible icon of what was invisible, our worship today in the same sort of way is this participation in and and manifestation of this invisible worship at the throne of God. Like the altar that you see in the church upon which we celebrate the liturgy, like there's one altar fundamentally. And every every community that is celebrating liturgy is surrounded by that one altar. And that's really the altar of like heavenly worship. It's all it's all one. It's all connected, right? There's, there's a cosmic significance to the liturgy. Um, there's also a very personal significance because it is the liturgy, which is like in, 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 in old sort of languages, you would hear this being uh, described as like the synoxis, the sort of like the coming together and, and, this, and this culmination, because it is in the liturgy that we become who we are called to be. It's we, it is our gathering with the body, in our gathering with the body, that we become the body and are perfected the body. And there's this beautiful moment in the liturgy where we say, you know, the, the holy gifts, the Eucharist, for the holy people of God. And it's our gathering together as one. It's our, it's our receiving, again, this holy gift, right, that makes us who we are called to be. So there, there's, there's kind of a, um, on a personal level, a, an achieving of human potentiality that happens in the liturgy, which then prepares us to go out and live as Christians in the world. Um, 
But then a note on just kind of maybe the historicity or the the structure of the liturgy. It's it's a visible manifestation of what the church is because the church is the new Israel, um, you know. And and the original worship of the church was you know the, that those first Christians would gather together on Saturdays in the synagogue, and they would go through kind of like the normal synagogue service, and then on Sundays they would gather together for their Eucharistic meal on the Lord's Day. And of course, that happened until the second century. The Christians get kicked out of the synagogue and, and contemporary worship, like the liturgy that you go see at the cathedral on 74th Street or any Orthodox community is basically those two pieces coming together. Every liturgy has its first half, which is the liturgy of the word, which is basically the synagogue service, which culminates in the presentation of the scripture, the gospel in our case today, the reading of the, the scripture, the opening of the scripture in the homily. And then the second bit is the liturgy of the faithful, which is then the consecration, the sacrifice. And there's interesting like evidence to suggest that even the synagogues in, in, in Israel would sort of participate remotely with the sacrifice of the temple. Like, again, there's this sense of the, of the church as the new Israel, that this is not a thing that emerged out of nowhere, right? Like, it's, it's even a, a mistake to think about church history as a thing that starts at the year zero. Like, church history is the history of Israel, is the history of salvation. And you experience a taste of that. You know, every time you assemble for liturgy, it's this, this taste of history, right? But also to the, to the first point, it's this taste of eternity. And, and, and we, fought, we, we are grounded in history. We're oriented towards eternity. And it's in that tension that we become the people that God has called us to be, the holy people who are there to receive his holy gifts and then sent forth into the world after the dismissal to go work holiness into the world. And, and that's why the liturgy matters. And so, you know, if, if I'm a, a faithful Orthodox Christian, what, what am I expecting the liturgy? What, what am I anticipating the liturgy to do for me? What, what am I, why am I coming? Or what do I That's miss out? What, what, am I, what do I lose when I don't participate in, in liturgy regularly? Sure. And by the way, yes. and by the way, I mean the whole liturgy, not just the Eucharist part at the yes. end. Yeah. Right. Because, because unfortunately, like, yeah, we, we, sometimes we can treat the liturgy in a magical sort of sense. It's kind of like a magical drive through where I kind of show up at the very end and I get my little, you know, magic bits and then I leave. Right. But it's really about transformation and, it, and it's a piece of kind of the entire integrated Christian life. Um, by itself, the liturgy will do nothing for us because again, it's not magic, right? It, it is kind of the culmination of the week. It's kind of the, it's, it's like, it really is kind of the alpha and the omega that it's the omega in the sense that all of our asking forgiveness and reconciliation with our brothers and sisters, right? All of the preparation, the, maybe the fasting, the sort of the personal prayer gets us to a point where our hearts are open and we can kind of like really fully mystically participate in what's going on. And Again, very few of us, if any of us, are fully there, right? It's, 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 it's not like one liturgy is going to be kind of like life-changing, right, for most of us. Like, it's, it's the baby steps of the Christian life, the day-in, day-out struggle. So in that sense, it's our omega, but it's also our alpha because there's what some theologians will call the liturgy after the liturgy. And so we're sort of there, we're consecrated, we receive the body and blood of Christ, we become, we're more perfected as the body and blood of Christ, and then we're sent forth 
to do it all again, but to hopefully do it better, right? To continue to serve, to continue to love, to continue to, to be the hands and feet of Christ in the world as we, as we pray, as we fast, as we give alms, as we simply do Christian things. And then we gather again for the liturgy and are sort of sustained and grow and so forth. And it's like, it's the culmination of the week and the beginning of the week, um, which is why, you know, the, the liturgy happens, the, the sort of the weekly liturgy on Sunday, which is the Lord's day. It's really not the first day of the week or the seventh day of the week. It's like the eighth day when, when, when creation is being made new. So we are being made new in the liturgy. We are called to, to, to go and make the creation new through the holy, good spirited things that we do in the world but we're sustained every week. And it's part of this little cycle as, we're, as we wait for the real dawning of the eighth day where there will be sunrise and no sunset and the, and the glorious inauguration of the Lord's kingdom. Um, is it frustrating at times? Sure. Is it, is it tedious at times because it's the same service? Sure. Like there, there are all sorts of ways that, you know, in, in the liturgy, we kind of come face to face with our own expectations about ourselves. We come face to face with our own expectations about who God is, our own impatience, our own, or whatever it might be. But it's, it's, you know, I, I was listening to a podcast uh, recently, I think like a, a Bridgetone, Bridgetown podcast, that Portland congregation. And they were, they were kind of talking about uh, fasting with like an uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, like the, you know, like you've, you've got to, you've got to show up for it to work kind of thing. I forget exactly how it went, but yeah. that's it. You just do it week after week, you know, like living the Christian life is what causes it to take root. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and yeah, I can't, I, w- I wish I could remember that little phrase, but either way, that's it. It's the beginning of our week. It's the culmination of our week. Um, and it's, it's the thing that sustains us and turns us into the people that God is calling us to be. Yeah, and I, I think I think sometimes um, we, when I say we, I mean I mean sometimes uh, evangelicals and particularly Protestants uh, really lose the sense of we ness in terms of the formation advantages that that liturgy has. Right, that we're being formed together uh, by by that experience together. That God is actually doing something in the liturgy it's not it's not a means to lunch right or like a means to brunch yeah uh, and that, that would be that would be sort of more of a new york thing right we, we sort of do liturgies to go go ahead and get to brunch right yes yeah uh, <laughs> we, we want to make sure our kids are there so they can experience that before we get to brunch or soccer or, or whatever we really have to get to uh, and so I, I think I think it's it's re- it's really really important I, I I am so greatly appreciative and this is sort of one of the one of the odd uh, positive externalities of, of COVID is that now if somebody wanted to watch an entire uh, Greek Orthodox uh, uh, liturgy, they can do so on YouTube uh, because easily, easily now, right? Um, the diocese has, has, has been posting the entire liturgy. So if you're curious uh, of, of what this is like, you can simply go to YouTube uh, uh, Cathedral of the Holy Trinity. You can put that in, and and you can see firsthand and experience uh, what that liturgy looks like, rather than simply reading about it in a, in a book. So that's really, totally. really fantastic. I want to I want to switch gears and sort of run through kind of some some doctrinal things, just to sort of yeah. do some compare and contrast. And I, you know, when I started reading. Uh, Orthodox theology, I was really shocked, sort of blown away at some of the similarities that I was told 
uh, wouldn't be there on lots of issues. And, and one of those was, was the, the doctrine of, of creation. So in the Reformed tradition, particularly in, in the Dutch Reformed tradition, you know, there is a sense that, that, that God is redeeming the entire cosmos, right? It's yeah. not just people, not just souls. Yeah. But that redemptive narrative, that the conclusion of that is the redemption of all things, right? Ta panta in the Greek, like everything, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, that's sort of this, there's this cosmology that so it sort of runs through the kind of Dutch Reformed, sort of Dutch Calvinist tradition that I was pleasantly surprised to sort of find in orthodoxy, there's this understanding that, that the, 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 the redemptive story also includes creation, right? It's not yeah. just people, that, that God yeah. is redeeming the whole thing. Um, how, how does, is that, is that a fair description in orthodoxy in terms of thinking about the, the telos of creation? What's, what's God doing with, with the creation? Yeah, well, 100%. It, it's, he's, he's, like you said, he's staving it. You know, he's in the process of, of, because of, of, I guess you can think about it this way to make it as like simple as possible. Um, the, the fundamental distinction that exists, right? You can read like Maximus the Confessor and he'll give you kind of five fundamental distinctions in, in the cosmos. But the fundamental distinction is between the created and the uncreated, right? And God is kind of the only uncreated. He, he has no beginning. He has no end, right? Um, but everything else is created. Everything else comes through him, right? This is the, the, the prologue in John's gospel, right? It comes through the, the Trinity, right? All of it, the Trinity specifically. And all things that are, have a beginning have an end. You know, the things that do, are, do not create themselves and bring themselves into being also cannot sustain themselves. So all of this, without the continued sort of like ongoing life that, that, that comes by virtue of our connection, however tenuous it might be, Right, because even to the, the to the extent that the devil still exists, it's because of his connection to God, right? Not of his own will. Um, and so you have this thing that has a beginning, and 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 according to what it is, will have an end, until it is invited into the unending life of God, right? And this is kind of like ultimately the story of creation. God makes, God then places human beings into this garden to lift up all of creation, because we talk sometimes in the, in the tradition about human beings being kind of the priests of creation in the same way that the priest will lift up and offer the bread and wine so that it can be transformed. Adam and Eve were called to lift up all of creation and transform it and sort of bring it into the life of God as this freely giving offering. That's not how things went, of course, which then opens the door for the saving work of Christ Right, and then he becomes kind of the, and and we we participate by virtue of being members of his body. But the whole point is that all of this gets lifted up, so that, you know, my the the maybe the simplest way that I can think about it too, even more simple than that, is like the instinct that we have when we're little kids, like we hate takebacks, right? Like if a friend gives you a lollipop and then wants their lollipop back in kindergarten or whatever it is, like takebacks are inherently unjust. Like the Lord made the sun to rise in the morning and the Lord made delicious food and so forth. And by itself, it's all going to be taken back. You know, the sun will eventually burn out and every plate of food will mold. Right. But the, the promise of the Lord is that all, like is life where there is death and all of these things can then be lifted up because yeah, when we come into the kingdom, we're not just going to be souls, you know, sort of like whatever disembodied and it's all things. It's, it's this, this, this fire that Peter talks about in his epistles too, and the, and the newness of creation, but it's all of it. And there is something like really stirring, I think about that kind of cosmological vision that, 
you know, in, in the same way that the Lord counts like the hairs upon our heads, right? He wants like all of, none of these things were made in vain, you know, and there's something like that really speaks to the love that he cares for even like the small things that all of these things are sort of like in the process of being lifted up. And that's our job as, 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 as Christians and sort of priests of creation to, to do the lifting with him. Um, Absolutely. And it's, it's been unfortunate, particularly in the American story, that there's been a branch of, Protestant, of, of, of the Protestant uh, tradition that's really disconnected that redemptive narrative from creation and made it really just about souls and just about people and built entire traditions and structures and parachurch ministries and eschatologies, right, that sort of mm. focus mainly on, on individuals rather than sort of seeing the, the, the redemptive uh, imagination for the whole creation, which introduced all sorts of blind spots yeah. uh, into how those traditions think about anything that's sort of like not spiritual, right? So this sort of, you know... Uh, distinction between the secular and the sacred is sort of artificial distinction between those uh, things. Right. And it really created quite a mess that many church traditions are, are recovering from. And, and, you know, part of that creation story, of course, you know, everyone loves Genesis chapters one and two. I mean, that's, that's, that's the good part, right? We get, (laughs) we get, we get, you know, paradise. It's really great. Right. Uh, And then there's that thing that happened in chapter three, that really explains chapter four (laughs) and then everything (laughs) else is sort of like revelation 21 and 22 right uh you know you know sorry uh uh, revelation uh, 21 you know so so you know we we sort of get the 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 bookends of the of the story uh beginning at, at genesis 3 and you know in the um a Protestant tradition, that is an important part of the story, right? In fact, sure. you know, part of the, the reason that Jesus came was to um, uh, involve himself in what happened in Genesis chapter 3, right? The, this what we call the fall. And because of the yeah. fall, we get the, we get the entire commitment by, by God, the Father, to uh, resolve uh, that which the consequence of the fall introduced, not just into humanity, but into all of creation, right? Which really speaks back yeah. to that, that, that larger redemptive arc. And so, and so there are some distinctions I, I do know in terms of, in terms of how, how sin is, how, how the, the impact of the fall affected the human person. Yeah. And could you explain, at least from the Orthodox position, what what the fall did to humans? And and here's what I mean uh, more more directly: is 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 it true that sort of from the Orthodox perspective that because of the fall, I am born automatically a sinner? Right, I'm sort of born sinful. Hmm. Or am I born and I'm someone who sins, right? Am I is my do, is, am, am I sort of compromised with a, with a sinful nature? 
because of what happened at the at the fall, and there's no way around that that sinful that sinful nature. Or does orthodoxy think about it in some other way? Yeah, that's that's a good question, right? Because when you when you when you sort of push that, you really get into that doctrines of like the utter depravity of of, of humanity, right? Um, I think I think the the well, maybe we'll take a step back and maybe even like recast what happens in, in the in the okay. garden because when we think about the fall, I think sometimes the the sort of the pop way of talking about it, which is kind of influenced by sort of you know dominant American theology, is that like a rule was broken, right? Like God said, don't do this. Adam and Eve did it, and so there is this guilt, right? This punishment that they cannot pay off, right? This even gets back to the sort of like, you know, the, the sort of Anselm, you know, Cordeus homo, right? Why God becomes man, because the, the, uh, the offense to the king is like such that no human being can pay it off, which is why the king has to send his own son to pay off this debt, right? Like that, that there, there's a lot of interesting consequences about that. Like this, like the honor of God is being impinged or, or whatever it might be, like who God is, who we are as a result of this. Like, I think there's a lot of interesting consequences. Um, but a, a different sort of like, and it's not to say that's all wrong. It's not to say that that's totally wrong because there is something about like God gave us this command and we were disobedient. Like there's something to that. But I think there's also something to like a different kind of like sense of what virtue is and what salvation is and what sin is. And if we have this kind of cosmological sense that the, 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 the destiny that God has created for all things is to be reunited to him to be lifted up into him, there's something kind of, um, what's the word that I would use, like connective or, or unitive about like virtue and salvation. And the opposite, sin is destructive. And sin sort of like is born of division and breeds division. Um, this is one of the reasons why like death is a thing that comes out of, of, of sin because death is this ultimate sort of separation. Like as human beings, the body and soul are separated when we die. There's this, this kind of consignment into nothingness, right? It's like death really taken to its, to its limits. But virtue is kind of bringing together. So you have Adam and Eve in the garden. There's this tree there. The serpent tempts Eve and says that, you know, if you eat of this fruit, you will have everything that God has, right? Remember like the, the fundamental temptation that Satan gives. Essentially, he's saying like, you can do an end, round, end run around God and have all the wisdom and the knowledge and whatever that God has, but you don't need God. All you need is this little magic fruit. And so she takes a bite of it and Adam takes a bite of it, right? And they kind of together, they make this decision. We don't need God, but we want what God has, which is kind of a fundamental division, me versus God. But then God comes in his mercy and they hear his footsteps, right? And they're hiding in the bushes and he doesn't come guns blazing and thunderbolts out. He's like, hey guys, what you doing? And he gives them this opportunity to repent. But instead of repenting and taking ownership of what they do, they point fingers. And Eve, of course, points the finger at the serpent and kind of points this, I, I take no responsibility, it was the serpent. And, he, and Adam does her one better. And he's like, it's the, re, it's the woman that you gave me. So he points a finger at Eve and then he points a finger at God. Right. And, and it's really interesting because yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's like, and, no, and, not me. I'm looking up and I'm looking to my side. Like I'm good. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the amazing thing about like God and his mercy, right? Because he says at the very beginning, the, the, the consequence of eating of this is that you will die. Right. And Adam takes this consequence and pushes it onto God not my fault. It's the woman that you gave me. You're the one who really should die as a result of this. And God in his mercy says like, okay. <laughs> right. Um, 
And so we have in the garden this, this finger pointing and this division and this me versus you, you know, this, this, this sense of like the Hobbesian sort of nasty, brutish, short, zero sum kind of life. But what does Jesus come to do? Jesus comes to unwind all of this and then bring life out of death. Like Jesus comes to create a world of mercy and mutual sacrifice as opposed to mutual opposition, right? Because we go from that first sin, eating the fruit, to the first murder in the space of a couple of years. Um, because when we frame our lives in this sort of way, sin begets sin and death begets death. Um, and things just get worse. Things fall apart. Um, in a literal sort of sense, like the human humanity fractures into our, into our tribes, into our warring sort of nations, whatever it might be, we internally fracture, you know, the way we have kind of our own sort of psychological and emotional, whatever it is, the mind and the soul become like everything falls apart as a result of sin. And Jesus comes back to, to, to re to, to fix things. So it's not even like, I mean, yes, you can talk about the guilt and you can talk about things in like a legalistic sort of sense, but I think in a more fundamental way, like that's when some kind of illness really enters into creation, mm-hmm. that creation was, 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 was made in this kind of potential state. It had the potential to, to exist with God and to be lifted up into something that it wasn't. And it didn't because those first pre the first people who were called to be priests of creation actually ended up casting, you know, the creation down as opposed to lifting it up. And that's why Jesus comes in this order of Melchizedek, right? To really be this priest that lifts up in this, in this, in this beautiful and perfect sort of way so that all things can be returned to God and all things can like live with him. Um, And that I think is like, is, is I think a more kind of compelling and, and if, if I, I think it's more to the heart of the matter of what was happening, like, Creation was made with the potential to live, but sin and death entered into the world as a result of our choice. And the Lord comes to free us from the, the never-ending cycle of sin and death, right? Because that's, that's the problem. Like, we can't get out of this by ourselves. Death enters the world because of that first sin. And I think then generations of human beings afterwards continue to sin because of that death, right? Because if I live in a world where there is scarcity, I will kill you to compete for resources, right? If my honor is impinged or I feel threatened, I will reach out and I will kill you. And the more the world becomes about scarcity, becomes about fear, becomes about all of that, the more violent and brutish it gets. And the Lord comes to break that tightening negative cycle by bringing life in them out of that death. Um, and, and he takes this, like this, this sickness that had been festering and growing and the Lord washed it out, of course, with the waters of the flood, right? But it continued to sprout because the only way that that could be fixed was for the unblemished lamb to come and to sprinkle his blood upon us, right? Like he's, that's kind of the cure in a sense. It's not, we couldn't do it by ourselves. It wasn't even the most virtuous among us in the old Testament. They all died ultimately. Like none of them were, none of them had it within themselves to do it. But here we are now, we can unite ourselves to Christ and we can live the life that he has offered us. And as a result, we can be merciful. We can be kind. We can look in the face of death and laugh and scoff and still continue to love, even when it makes no rational sense to do the, the absurd things that Christians are called to do, to love your neighbor, right? To, to, to break this cycle of me versus you and actually embrace rather than point fingers. Um, so yeah, we are healed and creation is healed and ultimately all of it is lifted. Right. And so in the Orthodox tradition, that whole courtroom scenario where uh, you're, you're born, you know, as it says in Ephesians, right, kind of objects of wrath. So I think, mm-hmm. I think some traditions are going to focus on that, that sure. you're an object of wrath. And the only way to have 
to, to no longer become an object of wrath is to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Uh, you are then justified by your faith. You're made righteous because of the work that Christ did on your behalf that you receive by your union with Christ. And so, and so you no longer need to fear the wrath and punishment of, of God. And so in the East, that entire understanding of the relationship between sort of the fall and Jesus is not a part of, of how I would say the gospel is understood or, or salvation is understood. Is that, is that, is that fair? Um, with some nuance too, right? Because, you know, even when you think about like the wrath of God, I mean, the, the, the wrath of God is really his, his judgment and the judgment of God is like putting things right. And if we are sinful people who are out there raping and stealing and murdering and whatever it is, the wrath of God is going to be pretty terrifying to us because all these ill-gotten gains are going to be taken away and all of this violence that we have worked is going to come crashing down upon our heads, right? Um, but to the virtuous, the judgment of God is a good thing because the tears will be dried up and those who are laid low will be lifted up. Um, so I, even kind of like our response to this is like, yeah, we can, we can talk about the wrath of God and we can talk about the judgment of God, certainly. Um, but I think like this kind of gets to that apophatic, cataphatic thing because there's, there's elements of there's elements of that story that make sense. But I think by itself, like just focusing on the wrath kind of misses something more existential, right? I think it's like, it just gets, it's kind of a nuanced conversation because this God is a big topic, so to speak, and salvation is a, is a big topic. So yeah. I can't like fully dismiss. I think it would be a mistake to like fully dismiss some, some of that. Um, but we just have to, again, like read it properly and in its context. And it's, it's more than just a courtroom scene. Although I think there are elements of this, which, especially in a penitential sort of way, like if I'm struggling with my sin, I might need to focus on, I might need a kick in the pants to motivate me to repent, right? Like yeah, the, the, yeah sure. You know, there's, there's elements to it, but I think there's more than just that. Yeah, I think, I think so much of this has to do with the ways in which particular theories of the atonement really, really drive that, that narrative. I think, I think one distinction, you know, there are multiple theories, right? But, you know, being, being, the the atonement sort of releasing us from sin, death, and the devil uh, is is one tradition, sort of Christus Victor uh, tradition yeah. that uh, has is is often obscured by I would say an overemphasis in some circles on on substitutionary on, on substitutionary atonement. It's really focused on this on this court of courtroom uh, a legal narrative, right? That um, you're you're guilty, and and the you know the the judgment and the verdict's been issued, and uh, you know Christ comes in the courtroom and says that he will take the punishment on on your behalf, right? And so yeah. that that's that that way that sort of substitutionary atonement way of, of focusing. The entirety of, uh, of of the gospel has really shaped uh, so many traditions in the in the West, particularly in in evangelical circles. So there there's there's some real distinctions there for sure. Yeah, and 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 again, there's like there's elements of it that, especially in a poetic sort of sense, like even in the in the Orthodox tradition, you'll 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 read or hear hymns that kind of like use some of that language every now and again, especially in like when trying to inspire a sense of 
penitential, whatever. But sometimes when our theology gets out of whack and that becomes kind of the only story, right? Because I think that the, the, the penal substitutionary theory has no place for somebody like Paul, even who calls himself blameless before the law. You know, what does it mean for somebody to be blameless before the law? If the point is like, we are all kind of depraved and Paul himself says blameless before the law, like that, that creates kind of a tension, right? And, and, and I think like that, that's why we can't absolutize some of these, these, these elements that can give us maybe a little bit of wisdom in a particular context, but when it becomes kind of the only story, it leads us in, in, in wacky sort of ways, right? Like as if, as if the, the, the real atoning work of Christ was like the pain that he experienced, right? That becomes another kind of consequence of it. So like mm. the more that it hurt, right? The more bloody and gruesome that it was, like that's really like somehow God was angry and he really wanted to see his son, like that gets wacky, <laughs> you know? There's like, that gets wacky when we absolutize these things. Yeah, and so the the suffering becomes part of the, the, the focus there, right? It's sort of suffering Christ, as opposed to maybe thinking about it in terms of the Christ who comes to free us to be priests over the creation, right? To sort of uh, fully allow us to be able to do the things that we were created to do by sort of unlocking the beauty and and the aura of, of what creation was intended originally to do. And, yeah. And how, how sort of sin and our passions, right, sort of undermine our capacity to do that. There's one way to think of that I've heard, you know, sort of, when you when you sort of come to Christ, you are you're afraid to be truly human and sort, yes. of, to sort of be the sort of human person that you were intended that we were intended to be as image bearers uh, uh, before before the fall. And so we're being, so how would, so what are we being saved from or saved to? Then how would you describe that? Are we being saved to what? Yeah. Saved from, from, from X to Y. How would you describe that? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, and I think we need, we need to be clear about that because yeah, if we, if we call Christ to the savior, I think we have to have a sense of what he's saving us from. Yeah. And I think on the, on, on it's the simplest level, he's saving us from non-existence. You know, he's saving us from death which again goes back to this kind of like this, this, this cosmological sort of vision of, of, of life, the, the raising up of all things, the life of the world, right? As a contemporary theologian, Father Alexander Schmemann would say. So what is he the savior of? He's the savior of the grave. He saves us from being just kind of like stuck in the pit, stuck in the darkness. Um, you know, Sheol, Hades, whatever you want to call it, right? Just the body descends into the grave. The soul sort of like is nowhere as the body melts, right? And that was kind of like this, that that was our that was our our fate for the longest time right but he lifts us up from the grave he unites soul and body again he reconstitutes our persons and he lifts us up into his kingdom um and that's important because you know sometimes i think there are people who will um moralize death um and you see this sometimes in pop culture as well like um you know death is actually a good thing because you know like death is an end and wouldn't it be tedious to live forever like it's really interesting that we there's this kind of rumbling beneath the surface that's trying to deproblematize death and i think if we fully deproblematize death we kind of miss the point of all of this that it's eternity and life with the lord um so i think we need to be clear about what that is and 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 again freedom of that right is the freedom to live in this like uncoerced um 
peaceful sort of mindset, right? Because again, so many of our sins, if we think about it, come from the consequences of death. They come from our kind of existential anxiety. They come from like the scarcity of resources. You know, when, 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 it's, when we're in like this self-preservation mode or sort of self-satisfying, self-satiation sort of mode, that's really what leads us to objectify other people or to be violent to other people or to manipulate other people or whatever it might be. But when we're freed from death, we can actually be like sacrificial, loving people. You know, there's no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends. And that can only really happen when we are no longer afraid of death. And we are no longer afraid of death because the Lord has conquered it. The death, the the, the tomb doesn't hold him. It's not going to hold us anymore. So we live and we live joyously and we will die one day, sure, but we'll rise again. Um, you know, and we, we, we give to the point of foolishness, you know, we, we like all, all these things that, that, that are, that is against the spirit of the world. The spirit of the world is again, to, to hoard, right. To steal, if nobody's looking to all that goes out the window, um, because he's freed us from death and he's freed us. Like you said, to have this vision of like a self-sacrificial, like true love, um, which is this other regarding, not simply self-regarding, but like, I love my friends and I'm willing to lay down my life for them. And that's the vision. Yeah, I, I think I think so much of the Protestant discourse, and especially the evangelical discourse, is not the emphasis on um, being saved from death. The emphasis, I think, is being saved from punishment, and particularly being saved from hell. Hmm. And so, so much of the evangelistic work is is you know helping people understand that they can be saved from hell. They can be sort of saved from punishment. I think I think the orthodox distinction, the emphasis instead, is being saved from death, and all of the consequences that death does, that being saved from death does for us in the in the present and, and the future. So that's a that's a, that's a key distinction. Do yeah. the orthodox not care about the sort of notion of eternal punishment, or is hell not not an issue, or how does it? Wh- where does that play into? You know, Jesus talking about weeping and gnashing and sheep and the goats and all those sorts of things. Is that not part of how the Orthodox encourage people to come to Christ? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that might potentially at times have kind of a pastoral role. You know, sometimes there are people who might need to be scared straight. Like, Lord knows when I was a kid, it was kind of like fear of punishment that kept in line sometimes, right? But I think on a, on a, on a deeper sort of level, one of the amazing things about God is that his, like, his mercy and his judgment are the same thing. Um, there's this, there's, I, I can't remember the citation for it, but there's like a poem or series of sort of hymns which talks about the, the manna falling into the wilderness, right, to feed the Jews when they had left Egypt is the same as the fire that was raining down upon Sodom, right? That this is the, this is the mercy and the love of God, which depending on our kind of like inner the, the ordering of our souls, so to speak, the or like the question of our relationship with the Lord, if it sustains us or it burns us. Um, and this becomes kind of an interesting, like patristic image that you see that like God is fire. The question is, are we gold? When gold enters into the fire, it takes the heat of the fire onto itself. It takes the light of the fire onto itself, right? It becomes like fire in a sense. You look into, you look into a furnace with a piece of gold into it. You can't tell where the fire ends and the gold begins because the, 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 the gold has been infused with this fire. But if you take a dry piece of wood, it turns to ash. 
And so I think one of the warnings for us is not that like hell will be this place that is down below and heaven is this place that is up above, but the, the, we're going to see God face to face and we will be wrapped in what St. Dionysus, the Areopagite calls his irresistible embrace. You know, is, are we going to experience his embrace as the embrace of our father, something we've been longing for our entire lives? Or is this going to be something that we are, is going to cause us to chafe, right? Is going to cause us to want to flee from him. You know, because it's the same embrace is there given to the, to the, to the, to everybody. Um, you know, are we going to, are we going to experience that fire like gold or are we going to experience that fire like, like dry wood? Um, and that becomes then like a question for us because like God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know, he's giving us the same opportunity. Like he's not seeking to punish us. I mean, he, 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 he longs for the salvation of all. But, but what is, what is the posture of my heart going to be when I actually kind of like encounter his, his love, that becomes kind of our challenge, I think, individually. And our goal as, as individual people is to prepare, to be ready for that, to, to embrace him and, to, and with love and joy. Right. And so whose job then is it to make sure that I'm gold rather than the dry piece of wood, right? Is that, mm-hmm. is that my job to make sure I'm gold or is the burden to get me to gold status, is the burden of that on the work of the Holy Spirit or do I have to exert my own effort to get there? Because I'm wondering, you know, one of the distinctions that people will say is that, well, in the Orthodox, they believe that you can be saved and then lose it, right? And you can, if you don't, if you sort of don't do the sort of right sorts of works or whatever, that, that you know, there's no, there's no guarantee that you'll persevere and, and be that gold, uh, that it's really up to you and the work that you do to make sure that you're not wood. Whereas uh, in, in so much of the Reformation tradition, the emphasis is on, on, it's really the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, once you put your faith and trust in Christ, that, that you are going to make it to the end. And there's really, there's really not much you can do or that you would do because you, and you, because the, the Holy Spirit, has taken over your life that you would sort of do things on purpose to separate yourself from the love of God. So, so essentially, you know, sort of once saved, always saved, right? So you come to Christ Mm -hmm. and God has, you know, there's nothing that can take you uh, out of, out of God's hands. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. And so, and so some will wonder, Listeners will wonder, does, does the Orthodox Church believe that you can be separated once coming to Christ, you can be separated from the love of God and end up being the wood instead of the gold? Like who's, whose job is it to get, to get, to get there in, in the end? Does that, that make sense? Yeah, that totally makes sense. So I'll say in terms of the, is it my job or is it the Holy Spirit's job? Um, I think the answer really is both and. Um, and you really have this sense in, in, in the theology of the church of a word that's called synergy, right? Which kind of means the action of two together. And that it's not like just the Holy Spirit who is acting upon me, although it's, it's, it's true, right? This is a gift that we're sort of receiving, but there also, there, there needs to be some level of responsiveness to that gift, right? Like if, 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 if our relationship is a doorway, I can bar the door and there are things that I can do that will kind of like make me less of a temple of the Holy Spirit, right? As I continue to sort of like move in, 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 in a sinful direction, and if I sort of prefer 
to be violent to people, to be cruel to people. If I, if I prefer to just sort of sit and give no time to the Lord, I close that door to the Holy Spirit. I mean, like the Lord respects our freedom in that sort of way. And the things that I do have consequences on my character. So it's both. I mean, I, I think we have to be careful about taking things for granted because, you know, we have to remember the story of Judas, who was one of the 12 selected by the Lord, right? Jesus selected him for this inner circle of people. He gave him the same love, the same attention. When he sent out the other disciples to cast out demons and to heal the sick, like Judas was part of that. And as far as we can tell, Judas was doing that. And then Judas makes this choice, you know? So on, 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 in the same way that somebody like Judas, who's on the inner circle can make this mistake. Um, and of course he had the opportunity to repent and he chose not to unlike Peter, who betrayed the Lord and repented. You look on the other side, the first person who enters the, the kingdom with Jesus is the thief on the cross. Somebody who did nothing, right? And like the, the Holy Spirit gives him this opportunity at the very end and he takes it. Um, so it's both, it's me and the Holy Spirit. And I think also like in a deeper sense to push on that more, it's really all of our responsibility as a church. I mean, St. Silouan the Athenite, who's a 20th century monastic saint, he'll say like, the, my brother is my life. And so it's not like, our goal is not like individual salvation. Our goal is to be attentive to the salvation and the health of all those around us. And if I see somebody who's struggling to like be there, to, to, to make sure that people are not alone and are kind of, you know, being taken hold of by addiction or sin or shame or whatever it might be, right? That it's, it's really in a loving community that we have people who can be accountable with us and to us, who can lift us up when we're down, who can teach us how to pray, who can teach us how to like break down some of the, the calcified shell that, that really begins to sort of uh, um, cover up our hearts and prevent us from being open up to the Holy Spirit. So it's not me or God, it's both, but hopefully it's something that's done in, in community as we're vulnerable to each other, as we pray with each other, and as we kind of like actually put the lives of our brothers and sisters ahead of us and, and kind of try to walk with them, you know, together, not just me, right? Because salvation isn't a me thing. It's a, it's a we thing. It's an us thing. So, so this is what the church is for then. I mean, how would you, is that, is that, is that um, how you might recommend someone to make sure that they are fully participant in the life of a, of a local parish? What's 100%. the, what's the church's role? I mean, is, you know, what's the church's role then in mediating that? Is it, is it major or minor, I guess? I think it's pretty major. Um, you know, there, there's when the monastic tradition developed um, and somebody like St. Basil the Great, who was one of these people who was going around the Eastern Mediterranean. Sorry about that. I hope no worries. that is, is okay. Um, as St. Basil was going around, like he, would, he was, you know, talking to some of the early monastics and he realized that like even monasticism, this kind of renunciation of the world and this extreme asceticism is best done in community. And that's the reason why even to this day, like the monastic tradition in the church is primarily what's known as like cenobitic, like common life in monasteries together. And kind of the odd hermit is sort of like an, exa- is, is, a, is an exception for somebody who's maybe reached a particular level of discipline or needs kind of a short term, like I'm going to go and pray and fast for myself for a period of months or years or whatever it might be. But even the monks live together in community. And there's this confession and sort of honesty and vulnerability, right? Um, I mean, this is one of the the ways I think that modern life has become so much of a temptation because when we spend our lives in front of a screen rather than face-to-face with other people, 
if we hide behind like our anonymous Reddit account or 4chan account or whatever it is, then I can get into any sort of nonsense that I want and have this kind of like secret part of me that just does this thing and rots me from within. And then I have my other kind of like day-to-day life when I smile and see my friends and family and whatever it is. But in genuine community, there's an openness, right? In genuine community, like I can, I can struggle and I can say like, look, I've had a, a problem with porn or I've had a problem with gambling or I've had a problem with whatever. And like the last couple of months are rough or you know, whatever it might be, whatever, whatever things that we are particularly, the crosses that we bear, we don't have to bear them alone. We don't have to bear them in the shadows. Uh, we have people who are there who can still like see us and know us and love us, which actually is kind of this interesting like precondition for getting better too, right? right? That like we, right. we can, we can be honest about our sins and still be surrounded by people who love us. I mean, that again is liberating in this, in this really deeply beautiful Christian sense um, and freeing because sometimes that gives us just the, the, the grace and also just the psychological strength to keep going. So what, what happens, what happens then on, let's say Thursday, I rob a bank, right? So Thursday I rob a bank and I, didn't confess the sin, and then Friday morning I died. Right? Am I gold or am I the wood? Am I the am I the gold or am I going to be the dried up wood? That's a great question. Um, I think the thing that we will say is that these are things that get complicated, and it's hard to even kind of like precisely put our finger on because one thing that we do for people who have even passed away, we pray for them. And even if, you know, repentance is impossible after you've passed away, like the, 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 the prayers that we offer for people and the love that we offer for people, like, I can't say what it does exactly, but it does something, you know, that there, there is still a loving connection. Like you were still a part of the community and you still have people who are lifting you up before the Lord. Um, cause again, the Lord is not looking to judge. The Lord is looking to save it's the, it's the really beautiful like story of the onion, right? That you read in uh, the brothers Karamazov. Like he's looking for the, t- the, the, the slimmest pretext. Um, and so if we have people who are praying for us, like, I don't know. I mean, all, all it, I think it's the reason why the church kind of gives us these definitive statements about this is Saint so-and-so, this is Saint so-and-so. The church doesn't have any definitive, definitive statements about this person is in hell, right? This person has been damned. Uh, we can't know that. I don't think we want to know that. And I think we want to, you know, pray and have hope that even if it's like a deathbed confession, right? If it's something like there's an, there's an onion there that, 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 that our lives, that the Lord can grab onto and use that to pull us out of, to pull us out of damnation. Right. So there, there's going to be some intentional agnosticism then on what exactly happens in any individual story. Yeah. And, that, and that's, that's, in, that's by design, right. In terms of the framework. That's part of the bigness, I think, right. Like this is, yeah. this is part of the bigness of the church. Like, yeah, we don't know. Um, there will come a time when the veil is lifted. Right. And we'll look to our left and look to our right and kind of behold the cloud of witnesses. And we'll know what we don't know now, but yeah. in the meantime, we hope and we pray and we, and we don't forget. Now, now what, you know, you said, you said praying for people that that includes, that it, does that that includes praying to to saints or something like that or icons? You know, you guys walk around with those really pretty pictures of oh, they're on, they have the ones back there on the yeah. exactly. What is what is that about? Do I need a saint to help me get to God? How come Jesus isn't enough? Why do I need to venerate a saint when I got 
you know what I'm saying? I got the yeah. second person, the Trinity. What do I need Saint so-and-so for? Sure, which is a great question. Um, so I think in terms of like the saints, right? One of the thing, one of the exemptions, uh, um, objections you sometimes hear is like the saints are dead, right? You should, it's necromancy or whatever to, to pray to the saints. But yeah. um, uh, uh, when the Lord is transfigured, right? He appears on Mount Tabor. He's got Moses and Elijah with him. Like if, if, if God really is the God of the living and not of the dead, if God really has conquered death, then the saints are alive in him. And it's not just that these people are sort of like dead and gone, like they live in Christ. And um, that surpasses understanding, right? Why is it that the, the, the handkerchief of, of Paul and the shadow of Peter were working wonders in the books of Acts, right? It wasn't because there was anything about that shadow or about that handkerchief. It's just that God operates through his saints, right? I mean, that's what he does. He tells his saints before he leaves, you will do greater than I, right? And, and these saints who now make up the council, the divine council of the Lord, right? Who, who surround the Lord with the angels and the archangels and the cherubim and, and the seraphim and are there worshiping the Lord and calling out to him and, 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 and reaching out to him, supplicating him as the king, they're there. And if anything, I think it's a sign of like our humility when, yes, we pray to the Lord directly, but we also pray to those who we know are kind of in his presence. Um, if you want to think about it, like scripturally, there's, there's a, there's, it's really interesting to go back and look at like Solomon in the Old Testament, right? Um, and in, and in, in, the, in that kingdom in particular, the, um, the position of like the mother of the king wasn't just kind of like she was the king's mother. It was almost like she had like a particular place in the court. And, and, and what is it? It's like first Kings 19. I'm forgetting the site off the top of my head when, you know, Solomon walks in and people will sort of bow to the King. But when Solomon walks in and his mother is on the throne, he bows to her. And he has this very beautiful moment where he says like to my mother, you know, I, what is it that you wish? I will give you anything that you ask. Right. And I think like for the, for the mother of God in particular, for the Virgin Mary, right. This is, this is the wedding at Cana. Right. Why is it that like she, she listens, even though he, she, you know, the Lord t- says, Jesus tells her like, it's not my time yet. He does what his mom asks. There's a love and a tenderness that the Lord has for his saints. And in the same way that like, if I'm struggling, I come to you as a friend and I ask you to pray with and for me, I'm going to pray to the saints, you know, especially those that I have like a love and tenderness for, um, you know, that got, that goes to the point, like they're, they're a part of this just as much as we are. And, I have a particular closeness to, you know, St. Andrew, let's say, to St. Siloam the Athenite, to, I can think of a couple who have just been kind of um, impactful in my own life. When things are bad, I will ask them for their, their prayers as well, just as in the same way, like, I'll text you as my friend, and I'll be like, I'm having a rough day, I need you to pray for me right now. Because um, it, it's not just me and the king, like the king has a court, and if I can have a couple of people to help me out in approaching the king, why not? My friends will say, but, but I'm alive and they're dead. So how does that work? And, and, and that, again, is like the transfiguration. Like clearly Moses and Elijah are not dead. Um, you know, if, if, if God really is the God of the living and not of the dead, like we take that seriously. If he really has trampled down death by death and raised from the tombs, like that matters. I mean, it's, it's I think to, to, to dismiss the saints as dead is ultimately to dismiss the saving work of Christ. It's, it's to say that like the resurrection doesn't mean anything or the resurrection only means something for him. But, you know, one of the interesting things in, in the history of the church, we have relics for basically every saint. 
we don't have relics for the Virgin Mary because one of the traditions that the church has for us is that like his love for his mother and his tenderness for his mother was so much that he didn't want her body to rot in the grave the way that other other people who have died. And as kind of an anticipation of what will happen for all of us, he lifts her up out of the grave as well. So it's like, you know, she, she is one of the first people to really like taste the resurrection that is going to be something given to all of us, right? Not under her own power, but it's her son who, who lifts her up and she still prays to her son. She, she glorifies her son. And if we approach her, she's going to approach her son. And in the same way as the mother of Solomon, like would approach the king, mother, I'll do whatever you ask of me. You know, we're, we're kind of hoping that the mother of God can put in a good word for us. Right. Now, you have to understand that, that someone who's a Protestant, they're just like, I, I'm done. Like, this is, this is out of like, sure. you know, this sounds nuts to someone who wasn't, who wasn't raised in, in this tradition. I think, I think that, that for people, you know, on, on first read, it's just going to be uh, uh, something really difficult. You're going to have to study this, I think, a lot to sort of understand the, the framework because it's, it's just not a product. It's not, it's, it's not the, the way in which Protestants are sort of taught to think about their relationship with God in terms of the presence of other saints or the presence of these other people. It really is. And in some traditions, it's, it's really not even Trinitarian, right? The Holy Spirit gets, you know, sort of plays fourth fiddle, right? It's sort of like yeah. God, the father, Jesus, and me. Yeah. Uh, and so this idea that there's this other cast of people that are sort of brought in, it's like, well, what do I need? I just need Jesus. I don't really need the intervention mediation of anybody else. So I, I think for some people, it's just, that's just going to be a, a, a tough yeah. one. And this, unfortunately, and, and, and I think that's right. It's, it's, it's our kind of very shallow representation of like who the Lord is. Right. And cause we, we talk sometimes about Jesus as being a King and the throne of the King and so forth, but we forget. And we, we see this in the old Testament, the King, the throne of the King is surrounded. You know, we see visions of this, um, with like the worship that happens in the kingdom, we see visions of this in Revelation as well. The king is surrounded by his council. I mean, you know, when you have Isaiah who gets called up into heaven as a prophet, he gets sort of brought into this council and he sees the Lord deliberating with his holy ones. And he says like, who will I send down to the people? And Isaiah raises up his hand and says, I am, right? Like send me. That, like, that, is, a, that is ultimately the destiny of humanity. You know, the Lord on his holy mountain, the Lord with his throne is surrounded by his cherubim and his seraphim and his bodiless powers and all that sort of stuff. But a lot of those beings rebelled. I mean, this is where the, the devil and his, and his angels come from. And what happens? The disciples are set upon 12 thrones, right? As we see, as we see in Revelation, like it is human beings. It is the saints who are lifted up into the divine counsel of God. I mean, this is what the prophets were in the Old Testament. This is Isaiah standing at the throne of God, being sent out in the same way that an angel or an archangel would have been sent out. You know, Gabriel ascends to the Virgin Mary to say, you're going to have a baby and it's the Lord, right? I mean, like Elijah does the same thing. The prophets do the same thing. There is this council. God who works with his holy ones, who works, who sends his holy ones out to do his work. Um, and it's a very different like model. Yeah. We think it's like just me and Jesus, but like you said, it's the Trinity. It's the, the angels and archangels and cherubim and seraphim. It's this whole heavenly court. It's not just like a king in an empty throne room, right? If, if Jesus tells us again and again, that the kingdom is like a party, it's this full banquet. And if we, if we can, if we can use that image to think about just the 
the fullness of the situation, like the, 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 the worship and the joy and the feasting. And it's not just like me and Jesus in this empty room and it's all of us together. Um, there are people who are there who are praying for us. There are people there who are like glorifying the Lord as we speak. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a bigger picture. And to be blunt, we can't understand the old Testament without that. I mean, we can't understand what it is to be a prophet without that. We can't understand why in, in, in Job five, when, when, when Job and his friends are trying to figure out what the Lord is doing, like they say, who, which of the holy ones are you going to call to? Like it was presumed, it was presumed in Israel that there were like angelic beings that we can call out to for help. But when we miss out on church history, we miss out on like salvation history and things even that the Jews would have taken for granted in the second, third, fourth century BC, we've forgotten. And that has, in, that has an influence on the, it, it creates a thinner sort of cosmology than, than, than really is and makes heaven a much more lonely and empty place than it really is. Yeah, that's good. I, I want to I turn just as we, we wrap up here to the nature of your work, right? So your, your job is to sort of help nurture youth and young adults or to help, I don't know, sort of deliver content for, for local churches. Uh, someone is raised, right? You guys baptize infants like everybody else does, except for the small group of people that I won't talk about. <laughs> and uh, that, that's an entry into, into what? What, what, is, what, what is baptism? Oh. What is baptism? That's the entry into what, and then, and then, if that, that that you know, baptism brings you in. Then what do they need you for? Gotcha, gotcha. So even that, um, I think, is a, is a, is a piece of the puzzle. Um, classically, when we think about the sacraments of initiation, it's really uh, baptism, chrismation, and holy communion. Um, and, the, and, the, and that is really like the fullness of life in Christ. And even to this day, when we baptize infants, even they get all three from the very beginning. So there's no kind of like midway point when you're brought into the church, you're brought into the church and you have a seat at the Eucharistic table along with everybody else. So you can be baptized at six months old, you're baptized, you're chrismated, you receive. And again, like we, like we said earlier, is, I'm like, sorry, what's, what's chrismated mean? Oh, so chrismation is what you'll see in the book of Acts is like the seal of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, so there'll be those moments when, um, you know, people have been baptized, but then like the Holy Spirit is sort of like made personal and it becomes kind of like their, their spirit. That is done with, with um, oil is kind of like what, how that evolved to be. Like you'll see it as like the laying on of hands um, in, in the book of Acts. Um, but that in, you know, kind of like in church history, the laying on of hands then becomes kind of like ordination. Um, as you have like, you know, the, the, the new apostle and, you know, whatever, like they're sort of, they're, they're, they're given this ecclesial office by laying on of hands and then chrismation becomes this anointing. Um, so that's what it is. It's like you're, you're, you're baptized into the death of Christ and you're raised out of those waters into the resurrection and the life of Christ. You receive the seal of the gift of the Holy Spirit, and then you receive the Lord's body and blood and are perfected into his body. Like we were talking about the Eucharist before. So it all really culminates in communion, which is not this one-time thing, but this every week or theoretically every day thing. I mean, if there's a monastery near you or a, or a community that does a lot of services, you could have, you know, communion basically every day. Um, so that's what they're brought into. They're, these young people from the very moment that they're brought into the church are full members of the church. And, you know, this is something that 
Christians in the United States, but not just in the United States, have been struggling with for a while now. Like, you know, we you have the, the Barna study about 60% of American Christians who fall away when they become young adults. Um, so part, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, I think, why young American Christians fall away. Um, there's some that are kind of peculiar to us in the Orthodox Christian tradition, um, and we can sort of like parse those out. But I think really the one of the problems is um, we 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 make the faith very abstract for young people. And I think that partly this becomes because of our own sort of broken theological understanding. You know, we're, we're, we get wrapped up in these fake divisions between sacred and secular. We're kind of defensive against the world. We, we don't actually believe that the Lord is victorious. We're just constantly afraid. And like, we're out there to like shelter and we're out there to sort of demonize the rest of the world. Like we don't give young people a sense of imagination and wonder and gratitude about all the things that the Lord has done for them. And we don't equip them with like the practical tools to live as Christians on a daily basis. Um, you know, the, the, the metaphor that I sometimes use is like, what happens when a child is born into a family that supports a particular sports team, right? Um, the kid gets dressed in the right colors from the young age. When the game is always on, you make the pilgrimage to the holy place. There's the, you know, the, 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 the posters on the wall. Over breakfast, you talk about the stats. When the team wins, you know, we won, we cheer. When we lose, we weep because we lost. And then like by the time a kid is 18 or 19 years old, a kid can be a New England Patriots fan in Boston and come to college in the city. And there's no way that kid's gonna become a Jets fan or a Giants fan because it's in his blood, right? But when a kid is born into a Christian family, we send the kid to Sunday school every now and again, or we send them to youth group, and we give them books to read and so forth, and we give them no experience, and the faith, such as it is, kind of percolates up here for 18 or 19 years, and then we worry why they leave the house to go to college, and suddenly it's the liberal institutions, the secular colleges, whatever, that are making them Christians. Like, those kids weren't Christians to begin with, is the problem. You know, we, we, there's a, there's a, a really fun Babylon Bee article that came out a couple of years ago. And like, it's one of my favorite Babylon Bee headlines. It's something to the effect of after 18 years of, you know, quarterly church attendance, parents surprised, shocked to find that daughter no longer a Christian. Uh, <laughs> right. And it's like, that's how we do it. We, we form young people to be sports fans or we form them to sort of like our hobbies or whatever it is. We don't form them to be Christians. Um, we, we have this kind of like abstract sense of what the church is. We don't, it doesn't take root in their bones. And of course they, 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 they make their own families and they don't pray and they don't, it's just, it was never a part of who they were. Um, and that's really a lot of the work that we try to do just to refocus on the practices of the Christian life uh, which are which are just there in the unbroken tradition of the church, like the prayer, the fasting, the almsgiving, the, the the confession, the sort of like the rhythm of community. That's what makes us us as as Christians. It's not just like, hey, read this book or spend half an hour a week in youth group and then have nothing to do with God the rest of your week. Brother, I'm stealing this. <laughs> I'm telling you right now, I am plagiarizing that illustration because as someone who raised in the South and I'm saturated in college football culture, it's amazing to see people form to be 
Alabama football fans, and no matter what, that mm-hmm. will never change. But they're not formed in the same way to follow Christ. It doesn't totally. happen the same way, right? It just does not happen the same way. And I had, and that's our cut. fault. It is our fault. It is. It is. It is our fault. But in the Orthodox tradition, they do have this great experience, right? They have the liturgy. So why doesn't that work, right? And the practices, yeah. like you have all this stuff there. This liturgy is not problems. an hour. You know, there's uh, <laughs> it's pretty. <laughs> so here, with Orthodox Christians in particular, um, there's a couple of things that we're struggling with in the United States. One is um, I think we've actually forgotten a lot of the practices Um one of the consequences, so like orth- orthodox, like the word orthodox means like right belief or right glory, right worship, depending on how you translate it. It's become part of our culture that we're so confident that we're right, that we don't have to do anything else to like go along with it. There's this kind of triumphalist streak in orthodox Christianity. And like, we forget about praying because we're orthodox and our kids are fine as long as they stay orthodox. And it's a very, it's a very sort of shallow sort of read. And actually, I'll, I'll tell you a story. A couple of weeks ago, I was at a, 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 a virtually a young adult gathering, and somebody was giving a presentation on the scripture and talked about like why it's important, um, why Saint John Chrysostom in the fourth century was wrestling with people to read scripture back then, and she and she gave some advice about like here's what you can do to read as part of your practice. And I asked a question. I said, "What, how, what about reading scripture in community?" What are ways that we can, especially as young adults in this group, not just read by myself, but read together? And she got kind of very defensive and was like, well, if you're going to read together, you know, you have to make sure that the people who are part of the group are leading it, know what they're talking about, make sure a priest is there. You don't want people having like the wrong idea. And it's interesting the ways that our sense of orthodoxy is being right. Like we're so paranoid about being wrong that we will actually undermine community and be like, the only time you're allowed to gather as Orthodox Christians is when the priest is present to make sure that you're not wrong. Um, and that, I think, is one of the weird cultural things that we have. Like, we actually, our, our sense of rightness or our paranoia about wrongness actually undermines community. And a lot of the young people that I deal with, like, they feel like they don't have permission to gather with other young people, just like young families, to, to, to pray together and to break bread together and to just talk about like what life is like. We have the sense that if it's going to be ministry, a priest has to be present as opposed to like, yeah, obviously if we're talking dogmatics or theology, somebody should know what they're talking about. But if I want to open the scripture and talk about like, what, what, how am I the Pharisee, you know, as opposed to the publican, right? How am I the prodigal son? Like we can talk about existential sort of stuff as, as Christians in community. Like we don't need to, we don't need to get into Arianism and heresy or anything like that, but we don't. And there's a lot of young people who feel like they don't have the permission to just be Christians without the supervision. And I think that's, it's a, an American anachronism. This is not the way that things would have been in a more traditional, like Orthodox Christian country where people gathered as Christians. So we're still like, we're just making some weird mistakes. Um, and this is why, like, the, the, so we, the, this, this image that I gave you about the sports thing, it's really one of the dominant images in a ministry training course that we put together. And the, the, the genesis of this course, it's called Effective Christian Ministry. I was in a room at like this, this youth ministry consultation with people from like the top, you know, Protestant seminaries, these really amazing people. 
And it's like all their questions were sort of like groping towards this sense of like, how do we form young people? What's really about practices? And it occurred to me that we as Orthodox Christians, like we have these practices in our tool belts, but we've kind of put them on the shelf. And it's amazing to me that sometimes I listen to these like Bible church pot, like Bridgetown, I was listening to the other day, like they're rediscovering fasting and they're rediscovering confession and they're rediscovering this. And it's like, man, here we are, we have it and we've forgotten it. And here others are like unsatisfied with some of the modern Christian paradigm and groping towards something that's older. And it's like, it's just, it's, it's so fascinating. Like what God is doing right now at this particular moment in, 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 in Christian right. history. It's really interesting. Right. It's sort of like, you want to say to your, you know, your community is, Hey guys, like, come on. Like we already have all this stuff that these go like, listen to this, right? They're like, yeah. oh, wow. They're discovering all these things that we just take for granted. So what if we did them more? Yeah. Maybe, right. Just a thought. Just uh, I want to throw it out there, you know. I think I think that that you know so so much of of the problem, and I see this with just Christianity in general, is mediating being a Christian in America. I, I think mm. I think there's there's something about the social context of this country that really undermines. I think every tradition really struggles in unique ways to sustain faith generation after generation because of the infusion of, of the idols of this country, right? And I think there's sure. some unique challenges as being an American. And some churches have tried to, you know, sort of protect their kids, right? Create a little shire away from that. Some <laughs> have just said, hey, you know, do whatever you can if it works out. Some say, well, they'll come around eventually. And, you know, sort of somewhere, somewhere in, in between. I think we all have challenges. You know, we've talked about those things so many times before. I'd love to have you back uh, sometime just to talk about particularly sort of high school students and, and college yeah. age students and, and young adults. I think, I think there's some unique challenges in the 21st century. I don't care what tradition you're in. It really is sort of, you know, uh, very, very similar challenges there for sure. This has been really, really fascinating. I, I want to point people to the Be the Bee series uh, that's on YouTube. I just want to sort of promote that that work there. Just explain what that is and, and tell sure. people how they can get to it. Sure. Yeah. So this was the first project that we did when I graduated seminary and started working for the archdiocese. And we tried to kind of reimagine our work. Uh, it's, it's a weekly video series we've been doing now for seven years. We've paused it and restarted it at various times. And it's really about, um, finding God at work in every aspect of our lives. So the series is about sometimes explaining difficult theological concepts and making them accessible. It's about some difficult ethical challenges, like what happens when we're struggling to forgive, what happens when we're feeling very judgmental. Uh, we're all over the place, really, but it's really just about having a sense of wonder and gratitude and realizing that the kingdom of heaven really is at hand and we should act like it. So short little videos on YouTube. The channel is, um, so Y2AM is how we rebranded our department, letter Y, numeral 2AM. So if you go to youtube.com slash Y2AM, you'll find our YouTube channel. And every Monday we have new episodes of Be The Bee, um, which are a lot of fun. We're actually now in our seventh season or sixth season, season whatever it is. Episode one, 49 just came out. So, you know, we'll see when this podcast goes out, but, uh, 
yeah, we're, we're in the midst of it. It's going great. And, that, and that's why we first connected all those years ago. It is. And for those of you who want really short introductions to various aspects of orthodoxy, I highly recommend uh, that series. I, I show clips of that in, in, my, in my theology classes that I teach at uh, the King's College to give my students an introduction to sort of the breadth of the Christian tradition. They're really succinct. They're really brilliantly done. I'm sort of jealous. I'm not smart enough to put uh, sort, of, sort of compact very dense theology in six or seven minutes. I, I'm just I'm just in awe of, of the work that you all do on that end. Uh, Stephen Christopher, director of youth and young adult ministries for the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese of America. Thank you very much for your time. It's a fascinating conversation. I look forward to having you on again and hanging out again. Uh, yes, the two of us. Once this COVID mess is is over. So thank That's you, right. and for coming on the show today. I'm, I'm so excited that the, the podcast is happening. This was a joy. Yeah, we'll do this again whenever you want. This is great. Awesome, awesome.